Stop talking. Make something of yourself. Like you? You make the lie. You invent want. You're for them, not us. Well, I hate to break it to you, but there is no big lie. There is no system. The universe is indifferent. Man, why'd you have to say that? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Thing Like That. A mad, a, I almost said a, I was, I almost said a madman about podcasts again. A podcast <laughs> about madmen. I'm just a madman about podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I'm so into that. Well, then I was going to say a madman podcast, which is true. That's true. That's the condensed and, and more thrifty version of saying podcasts about madmen, but whatever. As always, I'm your host, well, one of your hosts, Mike Levito, and I'm joined, as always, by my sister, Kathleen Levito. Hi. And today, we're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 8, The Hobo Code. Uh, what are... <laughs> First of all, can we talk about the title of this episode for a second? He's John Hamm. Well, not John Hamm, but young Dick Whitman gets taught The Hobo Code. I understand that, but to me, that feels like hokey to name. It is kind of a dumb name. <laughs> like, I expect quality and class from... Mm-hmm. Madman. I almost said Medmen because I was just talking about that the store Medmen. Um, but yeah, I get emails from Medmen now. This is like off topic, but we'll we'll circle back around. I get emails because when I was in California, I went into one of them, and you have to like for security reasons and legal reasons, they take your information before you enter the store. It's like hardcore like bouncer stuff mm-hmm. and now i get emails from them but every time i see it i'm like oh my god matt like john ham's emailing <laughs> me <laughs> this is the best day of my life <laughs> okay that's it that's a lot yeah well, what, what, what are your thoughts on this episode though um no, i know you hate the title it was like pretty good like this is like a like a solid episode mm-hmm. i don't super enjoy the hobo part yeah it's um, the weakest part yeah. I yeah, it it I it gives more sort of like color to Peggy's storyline and certainly to like this is the first time we get more in depth with Sal. Um and it's, it's good at develop like it's what I think Batman does well is it's good at even though like Don Draper is clearly the lead character, it's good at um balancing the storylines a lot and this is one of the first episodes that does really well. Is that it balances yeah. Peggy's storyline and Sal's storyline? And then Don's storyline as well, and they all kind of make sense. Do you feel that you're the most, like, who do you feel you're the most emotionally involved with? Emotionally involved with? Ooh, that's a good question. So here's the thing. I think, series at large, I do think it is Don Draper. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes some time, I think, to get there. I think the one I sympathize the most with, and I think is the most symptom, sim, yeah, sim, symptomatic, that means he's sick, sympathetic in general to Sal. Yeah. Like, he is, I think, bar none, the most sympathetic character, and he is, like, has the least negative qualities. Yeah. And perhaps the most tragic, one of the more tragic storylines. Yeah. Um. I just, like, am thinking this because 
I feel like Peggy's up there too. Yeah. At this point, she's she is stubborn, mm-hmm. which I, she's very like she's definitely a Taurus, but that's fine. I like Peggy. Um, I like all the characters, but I feel like in a way that I'm like the least emotionally involved with Don himself, and I'm more involved like when it comes to his storyline, I'm more interested in like or I feel more attached to the way his storyline affects other storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, like, a storyline in whole, it's almost like his is, like, this um, just common thread that weaves through everything else. Mm-hmm. And just, like, a base that you, like, a comfortable base that you always come back to. And obviously I care what happens in a story, but I never felt, like, what if there was ever a part of a storyline that I was just like, oh, anymore sometimes it was dawn's often yeah. it was dawn's i hmm that's interesting yeah. i think i agree yeah his his many moments of flandering becomes tiresome yeah uh the flashbacks i'm not i don't really I, the flashbacks are just like i could write the flashbacks like yeah. it's not that great um but i do think that as the show goes on it the the shell and the sort of like image that he sort of built for himself begins to slowly chip away and as he sort of does worse and worse it's like you realize that he is a um he feels more like a not like a man out of time but he feels more misplaced and his sort of like he you realize there's sort of more going underneath the surface. Yeah. Um, and that he's sort of like, uh, and he's tried to replace what's going on underneath the surface with like coldness and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of like pragmatism. But that once that slowly gets to start to chip away, I, he, you know, becomes more of like a mess. And in that yeah. way becomes, I, I become a little more emotionally attached to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, should we talk about this episode? Yeah, let's talk about this Okay, episode. cool. The Hobo Code... Directed by Phil Abraham, uh, written by Chris Provenzano, and I guess Matthew Weiner. IMDb is weird because it always has him listed as a writer for every episode because he, he created it. So he may have written it, he may have not have. I'm sure he had some say how it went. But we begin the hobo code with Don, not Don, Pete and Peggy both getting into the elevator early in the morning. Um, they are the first two in the office and they end up making out and having sex in Pete's office. Um, they have a little dialogue where Peggy's like, do you ever think of me? And Pete's like, yeah, I do. You you work 20 years away. And they share this kind of, you know, tender-ish moment where Pete shares how alone he feels in his marriage to Trudy. Uh, arrives at the, Don arrives at the office and he's told by Peggy to meet with Burt Cooper, but without Roger Sterling. Uh, Burt gives Don a bonus of $2,500 without really specifying why. And in the ensuing conversation they have, he tells Don to read Atlas Shrugged and claims at the end of the day, he and Don are the same and that they are completely self-interested. Later on, we're introduced to Lois Sadler, who is a new switchboard operator, and she eavesdrops on Sal's phone call with his mother, and she becomes sort of immediately infatuated with his speaking of Italian. Um, And she asks around about him. Joan's like, oh yeah, he's really handsome and debonair, smells like cologne. Um, so she cooks up an excuse. European kind. You're a European kind, yes. Well, he is Italian, presumably first-generation American. Um, and uh, Lois sort of cooks up an excuse to go visit the art department um, to sort of... She tries to flirt with him, and he's not... You know, he's polite and charming, but not particularly receptive. Um, Pete uh, 
is supposed to supervise the movers who are moving things into he and Trudy's new apartment, um, but instead he just kind of pouts and drinks in his office um, because he gets teased about having to move things. But Trudy surprises him with a bottle of champagne so they can go and toast the new place. But Pete gets snippy, and he just kind of acts like he only was going to supervise the move if he had time, as opposed to saying that he was going to do it. And they argue a bit, and they kind of reach a resolution that doesn't leave either of them happy. Um, meanwhile, the Sterling Cooper team presents the copy for Belle Jolie lipstick that Peggy wrote um, to the Belle Jolie team. They are initially impressed. Don goes us in this whole come-to-Jesus rant. Um, and eventually, they sell the idea. Um, when Don goes back to Peggy the Day of Woman not wanting to be one of 100 from a box... Um, and then afterwards, they all gather in Don's office for a celebratory drink, which they pull Peggy into. They congratulate her. She has a drink, blah, blah, blah. It's all good. And to celebrate, everybody's going to go to PJ Clark's later. Um, Peggy tells the woman the good news. Joan is kind of, like, jealous and disapproving. Um, but everyone else is very stoked. And from there, three storylines kind of ensue, right? You have uh, the PJ Clark storyline, where pretty much everyone in the office goes. Um, most importantly, Peggy. Um and Pete, and everyone's dancing, having a good time. Uh, someone turns on the twist, and Pete and Peggy's twisting. She kind of, like, flirtatiously t twists over to Pete, who is, again, moping. Um, and she's like, hey, come dance with me. And he goes, I don't, I don't like you this way. And then she's like, oh, and she sadly twists away. He gets up and leaves, and she twists as she shits a single tear. Um, Sal, meanwhile, kind of shared a bit of a moment with Elliot, one of the Belle Jolie guys, and they meet at the Roosevelt Hotel for dinner and drinks. Um, where Elliot kind of, sort of under the radar, you know, coyly propositions Sal, but they both know what they're talking about. And Sal's just kind of like, hey, you know, I, I can't, I can't do this. And Elliot's like, why, what are you afraid of? Sal says, are you joking? And he gets off, says, this has been a pleasure, and leaves. Meanwhile, Don goes to Midge's apartment with his $2,500 check, and he's like, hey, we should go to Paris. But before they do that, Midge and her friends want to get, quote, high and listen to Miles. Um, and of course, most importantly, Roy, who's Midge's friend, is still there. Um, Don gets high and listens to Miles with all these beatniks, um, which sparks this fl these flashbacks he has of his life as a kid in Depression era, Illinois or Pennsylvania or wherever he lived. Um, and in it, a hobo comes, uh, asks for a square meal in exchange for some work um, and some pay. And they have dinner, uh, he, his family, and the hobo. Um, Dick Whitman's adoptive mother like pulls out like a quarter and gives it to him. But then Mr. Whitman's like, nah, I have to do the work. The next day, he's undoing the work. Mr. Whitman doesn't pay him. Uh, the hobo and Dick Whitman kind of share a moment where the hobo tells Dick about the hobo code, um, and Dick realizes after the hobo leaves that his house has been marked as the home of a dishonest man. Um, Don takes a picture of Roy and Midge sitting on Midge's bed. He realizes from the picture they're in love. This sparks this whole argument. Don has an argument with the beatniks about, you know, if he has a heart and advertising and all of that, and they accuse him of being the man, basically, and he's like, the, the man, there is no man, like, the universe is indifferent. Um, the police arrive to, to arrest the guy in the apartment next door for beating his wife, um, and Don decides to leave, but they're like, you can't leave because you're high and they're gonna arrest you, and he goes, you can't, mm -hmm. and then he leaves. Um, and the next day, Peggy goes to work, 
tries to find Pete early on again. He's not there. Don comes in, closes the door, gets to work. Um, but before that, actually, the next day, he sort of ambles home high and cradles Bobby and he's like, I'll never lie to you. And Bobby asks him why fireflies glow and he's like, I have no idea. Um, so yeah, that's that episode. Um, what's, what's the theme of this episode, Kathleen? Outsiders. Unpack that. All right, I'll unpack that. Wow, such an academic response. Um, we see a lot of people who are on the outskirts of community, not of like of certain communities. Not like mm-hmm. the like the hobo is like obvious, right? Yeah, he is homeless. He calls himself a gentleman of the rails. He purposely has led this life of, um, and I think that's important too for this theme. It's not that this man has fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. Well, according to his story, it is not that he has fallen on hard times and is now homeless and working um, at random houses for food and for pay. Um, but he says, you know, I at one point had a, f- a family and a mortgage and a job and all of this. He's like, what kind of life is that? He like, you know, he's mm-hmm. like, I want to be a gentleman of the rails and stuff. Yeah, he feels free. Yeah, he feels free. And I think that that's kind of like important to note that there is a choice in the outsider we're talking about. Um, and to some degree. Yeah. And it parallels the beatniks too. Yeah. So the beatniks are, again, like outsiders from this society. They smoke and listen to, they get high and listen to Miles, <laughs> which is probably one of the best lines in this show. Yeah. Um, you know, they are very aware of like their situation. They don't go near cops. They like, you know, stuff like that. Um, they have like all free love and good stuff like that. Let's see what other outsiders do we talk about. Um, well, we have Peggy, Peggy. who's an outsider because she's a woman and she's doing copywriting. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because she is literally left outside of the room where they pitched the Belle Julie copy. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the men in the room are talking about what women want, which this has become kind of a running theme of the season because they literally asked that question in the second episode. This thing was the, thing was the second episode. Um, and... You know, she is really not brought in officially as, like, a copywriter. They have this kind of initiation ceremony almost when when they give her a drink and all of that. Um, But also, you know, she's in this, you know, relationship with Pete, and he initiates the initial um, sort of relation, you know. when, when, Excuse me. When they're in the office early in the morning, he tells her to come in the office, and that's when they end up having sex. When she tries to sort of, like, seduce him back, flirt with him back, take the initiative... He doesn't like it. And yeah. It's like, you are, you know, I don't like you this way. And he storms off and is a little pouty about it. Um, so her um, attempts to sort of, like, become a part of this all-boys club are working on the one hand um, in that she's talented enough, but not mm-hmm. on the other hand that she's still not expected to act. She's not expected to take the initiative and sort of yeah. be, um, you know, she's expected to... And it, this this is interesting because this is also during like a dance scene, right? Where there's yeah. like leaders and followers and things like yeah. that. Um, also, Jones, there's some sort like internalized misogyny in all of this because Joan is very skeptical of Peggy's success, and she actually says like, uh, you know, I'm not saying Peggy doesn't have anything upstairs, but usually it's Stern and Cooper. There's something going on downstairs instead, mm-hmm. which is basically her way of saying she th- she's thinking Peggy's trying to sleep her way to the top. Yeah, uh, I didn't catch that line. And um, on the flip side of Peggy being outsider to the boys' club, um, she's now outsider to, like, the ladies' room. Yeah. <laughs> the ladies' club. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, that doesn't sound the same. The girls' mm-hmm. club. 
the the steno pool. Yes, um, because I mean, all of a lot of a good portion of the um, secretaries are happy for her, but even Joan, the matriarch of them, is just like, well, you know, the rest of your work's suffering because of this. Yeah. So she's very just like, this is not the place for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that too. Yeah. And then there's very obviously Sal's storyline, right? He is yeah. a gay man in an era where it's dangerous to be gay. Um, certainly more, not that it can't be dangerous in some places nowadays, but certainly back then, you know, it's a very... Across the board. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he connects with this fellow outsider and they have this nice moment, but he's too afraid to sort of go all the way. He's too afraid to have sex with this guy because he doesn't want to get caught and mm-hmm. he doesn't want to risk what he has already. When Elliot asks him, you know, what are you afraid of? And he says, are you joking? He's like, are you kidding me? Like, I have so much to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see Sal really repress himself and what he wants to be. And it's very heartbreaking. And mm-hmm. this kind of sets a, as we talked about earlier, about who you're emotionally involved with, like, this sets up a lot, a series of, of losses, basically, for Sal. And a series of moments where you see him have to repress who he is. And it's... Yeah, it's heartbreaking, like yeah, I said earlier. I love Sal so much. He's great. Um, and then even like on a very minuscule level, talking about outsiders, um, Lois in the, um, what do they call the phone room? What do they call The switchboard. The switchboard. Um, they all, that whole group of people is outsiders mm. because they work for the company, but they don't interact with anyone. They are literally in the switchboard room all day. It is a closed room, no windows, nothing. They know the rest of the company primarily by the voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, their only insight into the outside world is Joan. Yeah. So even they're like, they're even more of like kind of a minuscule mm-hmm. thought of this outsiderness. Yeah. And the art department are kind of outsiders too, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like a bunch of nerds who just really like drawing pictures. Whereas, you know, it's, that's supposed to the frat boys and accounts yeah. and creative. And so it makes sense that she would then fall in love with another outsider. Yeah. Even though he's more of an outsider than she realizes. Yeah. And his very nature of being an outsider makes it impossible for them to be together. Yeah. Um, I love that scene because Lois is waiting for Sal to show up mm. at Peggy's celebration party. And Joan's like, wow, like everybody's here. And Lois is like, not the art department. Yeah. And she's just like... They are. And, like, the two... Sal's, like, this very suave, mm. romantic guy. And the other two guys they show working in the art department are just, like, nerdy glasses, yeah. like, pants pulled up and everything. Yeah. And they're just sitting in the corner so awkwardly, mm. like, oh, my God, like, music girls. Yeah, they look a lot like... Uh, they look the most, like, comic... Like, I, you know, I, I grew up reading a lot of comic books, and I read a lot of, like, the Stan Lee stuff. And they look a lot like... Stan Lee characters and yeah. look a lot like whenever like they would try to draw like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee like they look like that where they have like bow ties yeah. and like these striped shirts and it's just like this you know it's it's, it's like they look like they should yeah. be selling popcorn right like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. yeah a baseball stadium or something <laughs> um yeah. yeah let me think if I think of anything else oh, it's like a good well thing. so what's interesting and this is like an outsider thing that's not even really talked about in this episode and for most of the series is um the, like, three African-American characters at the beginning of this episode, right? They're completely ignored by Peggy and Pete. Um, When Peggy and Pete start to make out, Peggy's like, there's no one out there. Well, that's not true at all. There's this black guy, he's a janitor, cleaning the floor, and he kind of sees them through and he just kind of shakes his head and, like, kind of laughs to himself. Um, And so they're completely ignored. And the same thing with the elevator, right? Like, Pete is so indignant that they have to stop and because the service elevator is broken and let 
these other two um, janitors who are both black, uh, you know, use that elevator with them, right? And, you know, they just kind of give orders, like, to use operate the elevator and all that. And so um, they talk about in the book how, like, that's one of, like, the chief failings of Mad Men is that there aren't a lot of black characters mm-hmm. and it's really deal with them well. Um, but how this is sort of, like, a, in some ways that that sort of, like, lack of meaningful role is kind of, you know, mirrors the world that they're showing in Mad Men. Yeah. Where it, you know, they were afterthoughts. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting to explore, because certainly this is, like, not really spoiler, but you never get actually a main character who is... There's one. Um, there's the woman named Dawn later on, but she's not, like, a main character. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, like, they have, there are characters who have, like, stories, Mm -hmm. but there isn't, like, anyone we follow, like, any of the other characters, but, yeah... They, they, this show deals with a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that it was, I don't know if it, they would have been able to do a service if they actually took it on. Yeah. And that's kind of what the book says is that it's like, which is, which was a criticism of a lot of TV in like the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. was that like, there were network executives who were like, their excuse for not portraying African-American characters was like, oh, like we don't know how to do that. But mm-hmm. then there was, the retort is like, well, then why don't like... Maybe you should diversify your staff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting, and, and you know, I think part of the show it's meant to portray. It's not meant to portray the people who needed and sort of agitated for change at the time, right? Mm-hmm. It was about the people who had already won and were yeah. living at the top of the yeah. world. Um, in the United States, that didn't include a lot of African Americans. Yeah. Um, and that becomes more and more and more apparent as right. the series goes yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, there's also um, the whole beatnik thing, right? Like, they were people who, you know, deliberately removed themselves from society and all of that, and Don kind of admonishes them for that. He's like, what are you accomplishing? You're not really accomplishing anything. Um, but it's interesting, because there was a parallel between Don and Pete, because um, Pete's kind of moping while he's watching uh, everyone dance at the bar, and Don's kind of moping while he watches them, like, conga line to Miles, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, like, their status as, like, the quote-unquote man kind of makes them outsiders in, like, the places they are, right? Like, Pete's a, a sort of an authority figure. He's one of the younger married people, um, so he's kind of an outsider for all these, like, young kids having fun at the office. And Don is, you know, a corporate hack, kind of, you know, he's very talented, um, who's trying to hang out with all these, like, you know, artists and mm-hmm. whatever, um, and so they're both sort of outsiders in that regard. And uh, there's also in the beatnik scene, like one of the female characters literally says when Don and Roy and the other guys start to argue, like, uh, what's it say? Oh, no. It's like, how come every time we have a party, the ladies have to, you know, sit while the, and listen to the men talk, yeah. right? Like, so even in this sort of like, you know, bohemian environment that's all about sort of free love and equality. The women are still pushed to the side a lot. That's true. Yeah. Outsiders, man. Any anything else about outsiders? Um, no. Okay, cool. Uh, let's move on to our awards. Who is the Pete Campbell Memorial Worst of the Week? I don't mind. Are you gonna say Pete? Yes. He is a total baby. Um, like. Anyone who's, like, really bummed... Trudy's annoying. 
anyone who's really bummed about being married to Allison Brie is the worst. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Trudy isn't annoying, though. That's the thing. I think that she has her annoying moments where, like, she's like, oh, I want this hat. Like, I want mm-hmm. this. And, like, but I feel like she doesn't force... Like, she takes control in those situations mm-hmm. where she's like, my parents will pay for it. This, that, and the other thing. And I don't feel like... I bet she's great, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think that, like... Maybe I'm just defending Alison Brie. But I feel like Pete is just annoyed that he's married. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, like, because of Trudy. I think it's yeah. because he's married. Right, yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's a good point. We're, we are seeing a lot from Pete's perspective anyway, yeah. right? And it's his failure to communicate his feelings that helps sort of, like, lead to the alienation yeah. in their marriage. Um, I but, think also because she has a stronger personality and he doesn't want to be yeah. diminished. Especially because at work he's often mm-hmm. diminished. So he doesn't have... Um, he doesn't get to be king of either yeah. his main, uh, his two main environments. Yeah, yeah. And also he makes Peggy cry, you know? Yeah. Um, he, he sends mixed signals about sort of their relationship and what she means to him and is just a real bummer about it. Like, he is... He's just so mopey. He's so mopey. <laughs> I feel like I've said the words like 15 times this podcast, but he's, he's the worst. So, he is the worst. He's mm. like a little cancer. Yeah. That, like the Zodiac sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say Roy. He's pretty bad. <laughs> I just don't like him, and yeah. I never liked him. But I feel like you're not supposed to. Where Pete, sometimes you're kind of like, oh, do I like you? And it's just like, no. He, like, constantly fails you, you mm-hmm. know? So I think Roy was never set up to be a likable character. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like Roy and then... Who's the... This is kind of a spoiler. Who's the guy that Peggy ends up dating for a long time? The, like, journalist? Oh. Abe. Yeah, Abe. Um... They're, they were, like, the two characters who, like, when I was watching, I was like, oh, like, I know the modern version of these yeah. two people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like them at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They are like, the, like, modern, like, Bernie bros. Yeah. Or, like, the old version of Bernie bros, rather. Right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, I know, I know your guys', your guys deal. Um, yeah. That's true. Uh, okay. Roger Sterling. It's truly memorial, because he isn't in this episode at all. Mm-hmm. Quote of the week. Um, fun fact about that, I didn't realize this until I was reading, going through, like, uh, lipsisters.com for, like, the synopsis to make sure I didn't miss anything, but Joan says she's going to be leaving for a long lunch, and Roger's not there. She's probably meeting up with Roger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how they wrote around Roger not being available, because <laughs> he had to film, like, a Desperate Housewives episode or something. Uh, anyway, so I have, there's the funny one, and then there's, like, the, the, like, iconic one, right? I think the iconic one's my vote. Right. So the the funny one is Lois is like showing she's at the bulletin board in the break room writing something down, and uh, Marge, who's the character played by Flo from Progressive, comes over and says, "Don't ever put your name on a list. Have you never heard of Joseph McCarthy?" And Lois goes, "It's the bowling team." <laughs> uh, and then yeah, the iconic one is when Don is about to leave Midge's apartment while he's ostensibly reeks of marijuana. And they say, the cops, you can't go out. And he just kind of has his his hand, gestures for them, and he goes, you can't. And then he leaves. I remember seeing that and just being like, that is the confidence I want in my everyday (laughs) life. (laughs) That is just one I want to exude all of the time. Mm -hmm. That quote 
that moment, that scene changed me as a human being. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Shall we move on to foreshadowing? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I assume it was like their first, in the first episode, I assume that's when she got pregnant. I never thought about it. I always thought of the second one for some reason. But it would make sense because she, I think she started taking birth control like that day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when does she... She starts to, she gets the prescription in the first episode. Okay. When does... That ha- Does that happen? They have the sex episode? at the end of the first episode as Pete shows up at her door. So it's probably that one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and also because, like, at, in, the, in the prior episode when Pete's telling his bare monologue, um, Pete's obsessed with bears, by the way, because later on he'll, he'll, like, he writes a short... Because earlier on he writes a short story about a bear and, like, what the hunter's thinking. Yeah. Or he, he actually talks about killing a deer, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. But afterwards, she, when she's all, like, flustered and she goes to, like, the like food cart like she gets like an extra big danish and stuff yeah. so i think the implication is that she's like having cravings okay that, um i believe it that's yeah. fine um uh don gives what is her name marge marge is flow no who what's the his the person he sleeps with i don't like her midge midge I'll have the same name. <laughs> um, Don gives Midge his bonus. Mm-hmm. He signs it off to her. Um, and he later ends up having to pay. Like, she ends up being a drug addict. Yeah, they run into each other later on. Yeah. Um, she's like, oh, uh, come over and, like, you can buy a painting. But it's really, she's just looking for money to feed her and her, her fiancé. I think it's her husband. husband like, their, their heroin habit, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Let's see what else. So I have, um, you know, Joan compliments Sal's cologne. Eventually, later on in the series, Sterling, Sterling Cooper, Sterling Cooper, Draper Price will end up uh, doing work for Chevalier Blanc, a fictional cologne. Um, that was fictional. Yeah. How many? Pro- is that the only fictional product I they do? I think so, because I'm pretty sure most of the other ones are real. But like, I remember googling Chevalier Blanc, and I'm pretty sure it didn't exist. Interesting. Um, Peggy's like, "Do you think about me?" Like to Pete, and that reminded me of when Pete gets involved with the character played by Alexis Bledel. Oh yeah. And he has like fantasies of her showing up to his office and all that. And he kept, becomes like low key obsessed with her. It's not healthy. Not a yeah. happy moment in Pete's life. There's not many healthy moments no. in Pete's life, but that was like for sure not one of yeah. them. Yeah. Um. Uh, Bert describes he and Don as unsentimental, um, which we'll find. Don does have some moments of sentimentality and things he's sentimental about, but he, when he and Betty have sex at Bobby's day camp, <laughs> oh, yeah. not a day camp, it's sleepaway camp. He describes the experiences like climbing a mountain. He says he has, feels no emotional connection to it, which explains a lot of his behavior. Yeah. Um, Don says, I won't play kabuki with you to the Belgian Lee people. Um, that kind of foreshadows like Burt Cooper's Jap- fat fascination with Japan mm-hmm. and um, Roger's disdain for Japan, which reaches ahead uh, during the Honda pitch, where they do have to do a lot of, they don't play kabuki, but 
they have to sort of they try to adhere to a lot of Japanese business yeah. customs. It's funny the the scene where Burt Cooper's like we feel like nothing of ourselves. I feel like is very anti Burt Cooper because he doesn't appear that way. He appears more sentimental. He, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's weird. I feel like the the what they try to do and it the, what they try to do with Burt Cooper in the first season of this reminds me of they try to do with like. Um, Ron Swanson, the first season of Parks and Recreation, where they kind of set up Ron Swanson as, like, a little bit of a villain, Mm -hmm. and as this, like, arch-libertarian whose goal is to, like, you know, grind the local government to a halt and basically destroy it from within, Um, which, you know, he he stays a libertarian throughout the show, but, like, he ends up, you know, being kind of this, like, big old teddy bear who's, like, very supportive of Leslie and all that. And I feel like with Bert, they were trying to make him this, like, sort of, like, Ayn, like, very, like, objectivist, like, Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. like, fan. And, like, yeah, he's, like, clearly, like, supposed to be, like, the old right. Like, he's very, like, concerned with business interests, and he's, like, you know, a, a staunch, like, Republican supporter and all of that. But, like, yeah, he is not, like, evil. Yeah. He's calculating, but he never, like, he's not, like, super bad. Yeah. And he never really becomes the villain that you would expect him to. Um Actually, one of my favorite scenes is when he watches the moon landing and mm-hmm. he's, like, very excited about it. And then he dies. Uh, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> spoiler! Uh, um, sorry, that was, like, taking us up track. I was just thinking, they do kind of play Kabuki with the Honda people because Don, like, pretends... I don't know what that means. Kabuki theater. It's, like, a, it's a type of Japanese theater. Okay. Now I know um, what it means. Okay, yeah. And where, where Don, like, basically is like, oh, what we have to do because... They they, because they weren't supposed to actually like create art or something, and they do, and then they're like, oh, yeah. that's gonna like dishonor them. And he's like, well, then what we have to do is like out honor everyone else by like writing by paying them back, by paying Honda back for like their time, and basically like being like, yes, we did the dishonorable thing, but now we're gonna do the honorable thing, and that'll get us the business. But ends up no one gets the business, but he. Um, that's that's kind of kabuki, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they say the Belgian Lee thing that women want to tell people that her man is their possession. That parallels the jaguar pitch, which is uh, at last something beautiful you can finally own, which is which inspi- which is inspired uh, by when Ginsburg sort of sees Megan come in and out of Don's life. Uh, this is, I think, the first time and well certainly first time we see don smoking pot um we'll see him do it like once more with megan in hawaii um and midge is basically like hey smoke pot and then we can have sex and we'll be great and megan says in the hawaii episode like oh you've never had sex all high we should do that um (laughs) the gentleman of the rails is what don becomes like in the last season where he just drives around the american west like drag racing and stuff um, but it's also kind of reminiscent of that lady he meets at the, uh, the diner he goes to. Oh, yeah. Who, like, ran away from her family in Wisconsin or whatever. Um, so this, like, idea of just, you know, running away from her family, basically. Which Don does two or three times throughout the series. Um, Hobo says, you know, death came to me and death is coming to this house. Which, yes, Don's father will end up being killed by a horse. Um, and also, uh... 
Abigail, Don's stepmother, says that life is like a horseshoe. A horseshoe will be what kills her husband. Um, and I didn't realize this, but you actually see like a horseshoe imprint on him when he dies, when you see that scene. Huh. Um, Paris becomes kind of a thing. Peggy wants to go to Paris later on in the series because she's working for her maid, I think. Um, and Don, it like, and she gets upset that she doesn't actually go, and then Don just kind of throws money on her. He's like, here, go to Paris. Um, and foreshadows, like, this theme of travel of Don, which he travels with Betty, with Betty and Megan, and, like, it's supposed to be these moments of, like, marital bliss, and then it all ends up blowing up. Uh, Don tells Bobby he'll never lie to him. That's not true. Um, the couch... I was trying to think about that, though. I... Does he lie, or does he just withhold the truth? Yeah, he probably just withholds. Like, I just don't feel like Don communicates, mm-hmm. which is not lying. Yeah. He lies to um, he lies to Sally. Yeah. But I don't know if he actually ever lies to Bobby. I feel like Bobby gets kind of a short shrift. Oh, yeah. In series. <laughs> Nobody um, cares about Bobby. I feel like they were kind of like, oh, man, this Kieran Shippey girl is like a really good actress. Yeah. Like, we should like, right. And she's the oldest child. It makes sense. Um, but he doesn't really get a ton of, uh, ton of screen time as the show goes on. Uh, the couch in Pete's office where... Uh, Peggy and Pete have sex is also the same couch I believe it's the same office and therefore the same couch where on the uh, the the Cuban Missile Crisis episode where Pete's like like you know you're the only one who loves me and like I love you and like the only one who understands me and like you know we should like go off together because everyone thinks we're gonna die anyway and all this stuff and Peggy's like oh I never loved you and if I really wanted you I could have you know everyone that I had your kid and all that and he's like why would you say that to me which is a devastating line but that happens on the same couch um that conversation uh, Elliot's like oh this place is built for me a traveling salesman um the closest we ever see Sal to having sex and him being sort of mm-hmm. satisfied is when they travel to Baltimore mm-hmm. uh for London Fog he's rudely interrupted by a fire alarm uh talking about the long lunch with Joan um, the hobo says we all wish we were from someplace else, which we already know that Don is not Don, um, and he kind of made up his backstory. Um, but that would have been foreshadowing in that moment for Dick yeah. Whitman to be like, ah, why don't I try to do that? Anything else? No. Okay. Any other, uh, any other final thoughts on this episode? I feel like I feel like we went really in depth on this. Yeah, episode. I feel like we we did. Um, no, I think I pretty much said all the things I need to say. Yeah, the one thing I, I again like it's I feel like this like first season, which is good, but like it's not like my favorite. Mm-hmm. And of like the first three, which are like you know the original. Well, this is gonna kind of spoil stuff. Like you. If you've not watched the show before, the first three seasons, there's a clear separation between the first three mm-hmm. and like the last yeah. four. There's like more of a status quo. Yes. Um, I think it's my least favorite of the first three seasons. Um, and I think they, were, they still try to like add like, they're like, we need to make this like, like add like a bit of like an ironic edge to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, like the ending credits were just kind of like smash cuts to like the give me that old time religion thing. It's kind of like... 
it feels very like it doesn't a it doesn't feel like the aesthetic of the show, and b it just felt kind of like a like a and there's a couple other times that Mad Men will do that with like the end credit scene, um, so yeah, this is like not. I like the Sal stuff. I like the Peggy stuff. I think Don and the Beatniks is like pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the flashback stuff that like Aunt, not Anthony Weiner, Matthew Weiner is so fond of, just does not do it for no, me. Same. And apparently like, that was like his, like when he was in college, he wrote a story about like a guy in the 60s who was born to a prostitute um, and then like changed his name and like moved to New York. So like that was the, cons- like that was how he started thinking of Mad Men. And it also feels like the kind of twist they were like, ah, we need to make this show interesting by adding yeah. this, this wrinkle. Um, which matters later on, so yeah. and pays off, but it sometimes... In the first few seasons, it's like... Yeah. It and feels like a MacGuffin, almost. Uh... Just like a plot device. Yeah. And it feels like they're trying... It just, like, to me, it feels just like... I'm trying to find the right adjective. Like... Sticky. Like, they're trying to turn into something. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said. That's just not, like, turning over. And I think it works later on, for certain reasons, directly. For other reasons, because of the emotional toll it takes mm-hmm. on Dawn. And I think that's more important. And I feel like they could have written, like, a whole bunch of different possibilities for that, you know? Um, he could have had the same emotional reaction to a ton of different situations. Um, and so it just seems like a lot. For a yeah. show that's, like mostly rooted in like reality and the real struggles of class and status and gender and all of that mm. sometimes it just feels like really out of like yeah. fields it's it's like i feel like um i was like thinking about this and i feel like what sort of separates kind of modern tv from like older tv is that like a lot of old tv was like premises mm. and you had like a premise and you just kind of ran off that premise as long as you could. Um, like Suits. Yeah, like Suits. Yeah. Like, yeah, Suits. It was like, oh, this guy lot, like you know, didn't go to law school, but he's a lawyer anyway. Yeah. Or like even like before that, like, I, I don't know. Like, Burn Notice. Burn Notice, yeah. But even like before that. That's <laughs> for the shows that I no, know. No, like, 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 uh, like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. It's like, oh, like he's this kid from West Philadelphia who now lives in Bel Air, right? Yeah. And that's that's your show now write a bunch of jokes about it, right? Um, stuff and that they, they kinda do it like full like Full House. Full house, like Ironside, right? It's like, ah, he's a detective, but he's in a wheelchair. Um, never heard of that. It was like this old show in the seventies and like <laughs> the little like plot would be like it was like helpful because he would see things at like his chair level that like <laughs> <laughs> it's um, in Kill Bill, like, the siren, the, the, dun, 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 that, like, uh, the bride yeah. is, like, that's from Ironside. Oh, okay. Uh, and they tried to remake it, like, a few years ago, and it tanked. Um, but, um, and, and whereas, like, the new, newer, t- the quote-unquote prestige TV, it's, like, it's more about storytelling mm-hmm. than it is about, sort of, like, it, it's, it's more story-first premise later as opposed to premise-first story later. Yeah. Um, and so this feels like a remnant of, like, these earlier, like, we need, like, a hook. I mean, a reason for people to watch this outside of it could be a good story. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I think we did it. 
which we said it like 10 minutes ago, but then we went on for longer. <laughs> um, I'm Mike Levito. You can find me on Twitter at mlevito, letterboxd at Ameromike. Uh, Kathleen? I'm Kathleen. I have things to announce today about oh. my personal life. Oh, you do? Yeah. Um, I, you can find me on Rise to the Sun on Instagram. And the reason I always mention that is because I post poetry every day on Instagram. And I just, in quotes, released, because it's just on my personal blog, my first um, compilation collection of poetry. It's 30 poems. Um, it's in honor of Mental Health Awareness Month. It's called Coming Ashore, and you can find it through my Instagram, which again is Rise to the Sun, or you can find it directly on RiseToTheSun.com. Awesome. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Um, you can find us both on the postwriter.com website that we write with my roommate, Lars. Um, we also do a pod, another podcast called The Real Life Oscar Challenge, where we watch every Oscar-nominated, every Best Picture-nominated movie of our lifetimes. Uh, we write stuff on the postwriter, so check that out. Uh, follow us on iTunes and Google Podcasts and Spotify and SoundCloud. Uh, that's all I've got. Thanks for listening. Bye.